Welcome to Policed in Ireland, the podcast that seeks to capture the experiences people have with the police in Ireland. I'm Dr. Vicky Conway and I'm passionate about listening to people from all different walks of life talk about how they experience our police on Garda Síochána. I am, by comparison, discreetly, very discreetly, spanking the occasional owl lad. I mean, this is a country that was all about it spanking when I was growing up. And I guess it's okay to do it to children, but when it's a consenting adult, we draw the line at that. That's going to require a raid by police. Today, I'm talking to Adeline Berry, a trans intersex sex worker and a PhD student. Adeline will be telling us about her experience of being policed in Ireland as a sex worker, about experiencing harassment, eviction, and all of the negative effects that have flowed from that. I mean, the the reason more people don't know about intersex people isn't an accident. Um... There was a gentleman in the 1700s producing encyclopedias of intersex conditions, but the church was burning them as fast as they could be printed. So basically, intersex means most people are born what we consider what we call cisgender, male or female. That's most people. You look around; that, that's most most people end up male and female. In school, we're given a very simplified idea of how biology works again that's not really an accident but it leaves out a lot of stuff so two percent of uh roughly two percent of all babies are born intersex which means they don't fit the accepted uh specifications for uh for male or female they're born somewhere in between i mean there's a reason that men have nipples and it's because they started out life as girls but ended up taking the bus to the last stop which is just being a cisgender man two percent of us get off somewhere in between not not of our own choosing for some, for some, it, it's very easy for a doctor to to go to look at a baby and go, "Oh, well, it's clearly a girl," and that baby is is assigned a, as female. This baby's a male; it's assigned as male. So that's what goes in the birth certificate. It's not always correct because some of these kids, as they grow, they they don't identify. So then those people are transgender. Um, anybody that doesn't fit with the gender they were assigned at birth. With intersex babies, they look at your ambiguous genitalia, which can be caused by a whole host of different issues. And with little more than a coin toss, that uh, they take a, a ruler and measure the genitalia, and if it's over a certain size, bear in mind I was a five-pound baby, they looked at my genitalia and decided it would be easier to, to surgically make it to resemble a penis than a vagina. And because I was assigned male at birth, I never um, acted in accordance with my surgery, so I was punished throughout that. I mean, I grew up in in Tala, which was, I mean, I, I, I don't live there now, so I can't really say, but it was not the most accepting place for somebody that was supposed to be a boy, but it was super effeminate and really bad at being a boy. You know, it's not just what you ask Santa for. Every single decision you make, all your natural decisions, all your natural inclinations, you're told they're bad and you're punished for them. So... Really, I left my childhood without a scrap of self-efficacy. And because my home was not a safe place to be in, um, but uh, yeah, I entered into sex work in my teens, really to escape a, a, a really a dangerous home environment. So yeah, that's, that's the short version of me. It wasn't just at home that there were issues. And eventually, Adeline decided to leave Ireland altogether. At 21, I end up securing the Morrison visa and emigrating to the United States, which is why my accent a little muddled. But when I left, it was illegal to even be gay, let alone anything else. We're not as caring. A, it's funny because our slogan has always been Cade Mila Falcha, land of a thousand Malcolms. And when I was growing up, getting beaten up in Tala on the way to school and on the way home from school, you know, getting beaten up at home, I always wondered who those welcomes were for. But um, after returning home, I was coming back to the seat of a lot of trauma. So I was uh, suicidal after coming home. I, I battled depression all my life, but it turns out 
that a lot of my depression comes from a, a hormone issue, which is related to me being intersex. So 90% of my depression disappeared as soon as I got access to medication to balance my hormones. And before I got on HRT, I was sleeping one day a week. And I didn't. I just thought I was a person who slept one day a week. I didn't associate that, that with the fact that I was always suicidal. I thought I was... Of course, you're always suicidal. You're you're <laughs> you're a trans sex worker from Tala who wouldn't be suicidal. But no, it was a coincidence. It was just that I was I wasn't sleeping, but but it was hormonal uh, hormone related and related to my intersex condition. There are many obstacles to living life as a trans person in Ireland, and that includes a significant impact on job prospects, which Adeline encountered after starting her own business. I continue to be amazed at my own naivety. And my ability to find things jaw dropping. Um, I know I'd heard a lot of things. I was in, I was pen pals with a couple of sex workers here, uh, including the late Laura Lee. And I'd heard, oh, sex work is legal here because I'd heard so many things. I mean, I was over in America. Trump was up and coming, and I was like, I yeah, I, I got to go. The writing's on the wall. Uh, I am the biological parent of uh, identical twins that are just absolutely amazing human beings. And uh, that I'm very, very proud of. But I wanted to get my kiddos um, and my wife out of America. So uh, we came back here and I went to see a solicitor about whether I can, should and can do sex work. Now, bear in mind, if you're a, uh, an undocumented person in Ireland, you're not seeing a solicitor. There's a lot of people not seeing a solicitors. I had the luxury of seeing a solicitor and they were like, no, no, it's fine. You're, 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 you're all good. Go ahead. Um, because I, I, as, as much as I'd heard about how much Ireland had progressed with gay marriage and, and everything else and the gender recognition bill, I, I grew up here in the 70s and 80s in, in Tala, you know, and so I, I was still a bit skeptical, as optimistic as I am. And uh, I, I saw this uh, secretary who, or this, uh, this solicitor who um, assured me everything's going to be fine. So like an absolute idiot, I signed literally everything I had into opening a really beautiful dungeon so I could work as a dominatrix here. Then, you know, that, that led to uh, a police raid, um, months of harassment and threats and straight up lies from the guardie. But uh, yeah, basically then they bullied my landlord through Irish sex working laws, brothel keeping laws into evicting us. But since then, so after that, I tried to get other work, and literally nobody's going to hire you. Like nobody, are there trans people here in Ireland with jobs? Yes. Um, uh, I did finally find a place that would uh, let me tattoo a little bit, but I was making, I wasn't, I was maybe making 80 bucks a week there. People were not really comfortable getting tattooed by an old trans person. Some people were, some people are fine with it, so, uh, some people were not. And, uh, but that place unfortunately didn't survive COVID that's gone under in the meantime. So a lot of us don't really have a lot of other options, you know, than sex work. But it's, uh, this is a very dangerous environment to be doing sex work in. Adeline talks about finding it next to impossible to get work in Ireland and feeling driven to engage in sex work for economic reasons. It's important to pause here and see what that means. There's some confusion over the status of sex work, with some saying Ireland doesn't criminalise the selling of sex. This to me is a real misnomer. So let's look at the law. Sex worker prostitution has been criminal in Ireland for a long time, but in a kind of roundabout strange way. It's perhaps interesting to know that Dublin in the late 1800s had one of the largest red light districts, some 17,000 sex workers worked here. And at that point in time, before things like condoms, this was a huge public health risk with fears of the spread of STIs very high. So legislation in 1885 criminalised brothel keeping. It won't surprise many to know that an independent Ireland, which sent women to Magdalene laundries and saw female sexuality as something to be suppressed, a none too kind view was taken of sex workers who were seen as immoral and filthy. The Criminal Law Amendment Act of 1935 continued the offence of brothel keeping, but created offences of common prostitutes, loitering, importuning, soliciting, or otherwise being offensive to passers-by. A guard's opinion that someone was a common prostitute 
was sufficient evidence to establish that as fact. That was the law until the mid-80s, when the Supreme Court, in an unrelated case, struck down some of this language as too vague in criminal offences. Those sections became unconstitutional and recorded crime fell from over 600 a year to zero. The Criminal Law Sexual Offences Act 1993 remedied this. And what it did was criminalise sex work by going around the houses. It created offences of failing to move on when the guard asked you if you've been loitering for the purposes of prostitution, directing, organising and controlling prostitution, living on the earnings of prostitution and brothel keeping this being two or more people working together. Now, if you have a job, but it's a crime to live off the earnings of that job, then to my mind, that means your job is criminalised. If sharing a workspace with a colleague is a crime, then it implies your job is criminal. It was not possible under this law to work as a sex worker without breaking the law. And in 2000, nearly a thousand people were prosecuted for these offences. The 2017 Act introduced a lot of offences relating to the purchase of sex, supposedly to redirect attention that way. If it's a crime for people to buy it, maybe they won't do so. And women, often deeply vulnerable to begin with, will be safer. This is often referred to as the Swedish or the Nordic model. But the 2017 Act did not get rid of those offences committed by the sex worker. In fact, for some of them, it actually only doubled the punishments. So in reality, under Irish law, both the purchaser and the seller now commit crimes. We spoke to Wendy Lyon, a solicitor at Abbey Law who regularly represents sex workers, to ask how she sees the law being enforced. Well, obviously, most of what I hear would come from sex workers themselves. And by and large, it would be quite a negative experience that they would report. Um, this idea that we've that we've heard that now that they're not criminalized, they can report things to the guards is complete and utter nonsense. I mean, for the most part, there wasn't actually a real change in the law um, in, in terms of indoor workers at all. Selling sex indoors was never illegal. It was always illegal to share premises with another sex worker that's prosecuted as brothel keeping. And that law remains in force and it is still used to target sex workers so that uh, they remain afraid of reporting uh, incidences that happen to them. I've also heard from sex workers who were actually not even working with another person. They were just working alone and they still uh, experienced uh, guards coming to their door and um, essentially telling them to get out, uh, even though they were breaking no law. We live in a world where you rarely see a guard uh, by themselves, that they work together for safety. And some of them have guns. But if you're an 80-pound sex worker that's just trying to survive, you have to work alone or you're going to prison. Like, the, they, was it last year, last June, that they put a 23-year-old and a 25-year-old uh, they were sentenced to nine months for the sole crime. One of them was pregnant, and they were sentenced for the sole crime of working together. That was the only crime they committed. There wasn't even any clients present. The judge even made fun of them for not having any money there. This is where we're at. And it's just, we're, like, the thing that is really heartbreaking to me is that in any of the uh, literature that was generated to support this change in the law, Everybody acknowledges the reason why people go into sex work. They acknowledge that it's for economic reasons, that it's because of migration, it's because of discrimination, it's, it's because of all of these things. And then th th they'll admit that you're driven into it for these, for, for these reasons. But then we're going to also take a jump over here and say, but if there was no clients, there'd be no sex work. But it, when you when you do that, you're literally you're criminalizing. They're literally criminalizing survival. Another thing too is direct provision. You know, so it's like we put those people there. If you allowed them to work, it would be one thing, but they're not allowed to work, so they're to survive in this amount of money. So what do you do in those instances? You turn to sex work. The things that come up from the NGOs, the powerful NGOs in this country is that they're like, well, we have to stop them getting those clients. How about stopping needing them to do... Like, here's the thing. If, if, if nobody in Ireland needed to go into sex work, you've effectively destroyed sex work. And you haven't hurt any of the women you're claiming to help in the process. 
When it comes to the nature of the interactions that sex workers have with the police, we have to look at two sides. The investigation of sex workers as criminals and the support and protection of sex workers as victims. Addie has first-hand experience of having her sex work activity being investigated by the Gardaí. Well, um, as I said, first of all, they raided my space on a search for uh, trafficked individuals. I worked as a dominatrix. That's basically what I built as a dungeon. And uh, I had a rack of dildos, a rack of high-heeled shoes. And this one guard in particular was very interested in taking a lot of photographs of specifically the dildos and the shoes. I don't, I presume it's evidence of some sort. I don't know. But yeah, there was no evidence of uh, anything because I wasn't trafficking. I was just there, you know, spanking old lads' bums. They questioned my client and let him go. Um, But after that, that same officer that was taking the photographs was back, just threatening me in the laneway. I I don't know that being trans has something to do with it, but I do kind of tend to stand out. I've never, even growing up, it would have been lovely if I could blend in, but I've never been good at it. But um, it went on and on. I went back to the Gardaí and I said, like, why? I mean, what's? I just want to know what's going on. I was like, have I broken any laws? Because this isn't like, this is really my first interaction with them. I've been singing the praises of the Gardaí over and I mean, we, we all see what's happening in America with George Floyd. And I did group, I grew up in Tala and there was always an us versus them kind of dynamic. And in my naivety and in the years gone, I sort of assumed that that had changed. When I went up to the, the police station, they said, um, there's no investigation into me. Uh, I've broken no laws. And then I just continued to get harassment from the Gardaí. Uh, uh, I was told that uh, my doors were going to be sawed off by the fire department and all my things would be thrown out in the streets. I'm like, but why? You know, and like, uh, I phoned the fire department. And they're like, that's really not a thing we do. Finally, my landlord evicted us and we lost everything. And uh, my wife uh, attempted suicide. And uh, I was um, about to follow in her shoes and then decided against it Mm. and decided um, to uh, fight it instead. Yeah, yeah. But um, there's a lot of other people that can't. I mean, like, because I'm trans and intersex, I've already, I mean, when I was coming back to Ireland, I had aunts and uncles reaching out and telling me not to make contact with them, that I'm not welcome in their homes. So, I mean, I've already lost. I have no contact with my parents. I have no contact with most of my family. Uh, So I'm not in danger. I'm very close with my kids. I'm not in danger of being disowned by my family and losing the family supports because I don't have them. Um, A lot of other people can't speak up. A lot of other people were evicted and they were worried about losing their children should should they push the issue. And that's what we're seeing. I would love to live in a world where you're in trouble. You can go ahead and call the Gardaí. Um, I got a phone call. You know, are you familiar with the story of Kitty Genovese? No. So she's a lady who was murdered in New York years ago. And they kind of used it as a basis for a lot of studies like the bystander effect and whatnot. And the story was kind of misreported, really. But the, the gist of it was that basically this woman was getting attacked and screaming for help and nobody did anything. And uh, basically nobody called the police, nobody did anything. It's not entirely true, but uh, she, was, she was brutally murdered and she sounded like, uh, like a really amazing, truly amazing person. But I actually had a worker call me at about three in the morning one night going through a similar story where she saw someone and I could hear on the phone screaming, somebody help me. And she wanted to phone the Gardaí, but based on her own experiences with the Gardaí, she was afraid she would make this woman's circumstances worse. And while we were on the phone, she's like, eventually, somebody came down and let this woman in from the building. But apparently, she was just pressing all the buzzers and going screaming, somebody help me, let me in. And this woman didn't. She, she was like, my instinct's to phone the police, but I, I, after what I went through, I don't want to endanger this woman's life. And this is where we're at. It's noteworthy that this is the second episode in a row 
where someone hasn't called the police for fear of making things worse for someone else. Then, then what are these people doing? These people who are, are trying to survive and have turned to sex work. What do they do then? Get jobs in banking? Are they snapped up by Google? Like, what happens to all these people? Like, um, after I was evicted by the police, I didn't get a whole bunch of job applications in my door. I didn't get, I, I, I was, no, that's just it. Now you starve or you kill yourself or you do whatever you got to do now. Like, it's just a lot of the people that I've spoken to that have been evicted, uh, like I was, are single mothers who are thrown out on the streets. They haven't broken any laws but the police will find out that they're a sex worker and then pressure the landlord and throw them out. And in my case, when, when my facility was raided by the police, there was a client there at the time. They sent him on his way. Right now, um, Sway is working on her own caseworker thing set up, but I was working with another organization doing outreach. And I would see two times the amount of police on the street as I would sex workers. And... They're flashing the lights to scare off the, the clients. They're harassing the workers. The workers are not breaking any laws being there on the, on the side of the street trying to make, make a bit of money. And the cops are telling them, you're wasting your time here tonight, love. You may as well go on home. That's easier to say because they're not getting a paycheck. So they don't. They move into somewhere that's a little less well-lit. I, I talked to one worker who, after the cops had harassed her, moved into a less well-lit area, jumped into a car. And actually, it was a neighbor in the area opened her door and dragged her out by the hair out of the car. One study in Canada found that criminalisation of the purchaser forced women to work longer hours and it severely impacted on their safety strategies. They found women spent less time screening and negotiating with clients, were willing to engage in less safe sex, such as without condoms, and engaged in activities in less well-lit, more isolated areas where there is less accessible help. Solicitor Wendy Lyon also pointed out that sex workers may not know their rights when it comes to interacting with the guardie. I've heard of a lot of experiences of, and normally this would happen in the context of, you know, of a, a, an alleged brothel keeping uh, raid where money would be confiscated from them um, as potential proceeds of crime. And many sex workers don't know that they're entitled to request a receipt and guards will not offer a receipt. So you end up with a situation where the guards say they took one amount of money. The sex workers say that they took a different amount of money. And there's absolutely no way to prove uh, that the sex worker is, is actually the one telling the truth there. And, you know, a lot of sex workers, you know, in Ireland, obviously, are not, um, you know, a lot of them are not Irish nationals. Um, some of them don't have very good English. Many of them don't know their rights at all. And for many of them, it's obviously just a terrifying experience because they don't know what's happening. They, you know, even if they knew their rights, they wouldn't necessarily, you know, be thinking in the heat of the moment to to exercise their rights. I want to highlight an issue here of police power and discretion. In order to enforce the laws, we give the police really exceptional powers. They can enter your home, they can conduct surveillance, they can deprive you of your liberty. They can use force and sometimes even kill you. These are huge powers and it's why oversight and accountability are so important. But if the police use their powers every single time that they could, we probably wouldn't be too happy. Most people listening will have broken the law at least once in their lives, whether that's illegal downloading, speeding, even crossing the road where you shouldn't. And the police couldn't enforce every law. We'd have to have police on every single corner and a hell of a lot more jails. So the police have discretion as to when they exercise their powers. And this is in itself a good thing. We want them to have that discretion. The problem is what are the values that inform how that discretion gets used? This is where police culture comes in. Police culture or cop culture is a set of values and norms which pervade policing and it holds up anywhere in the world and often determines how police use their discretion. These are values that are learned on the job. It's not a list that's handed out but it's a way of being, thinking, and doing the job that is picked up from colleagues. My guess is we'll come back to this culture in the rest of the series, and there are generally accepted to be about eight characteristics that are key to culture. But one we'll talk about today is suspicion. 
Police are encouraged to be suspicious, to look for trouble, to be alert. But that suspicion can lead to stereotypes. That all young people on the street corners are up to no good. That all elderly people are harmless. And we start to see thoughts and stereotypes form about groups of people. Sex workers may be one of those groups. So when approached with an issue and an opportunity to exercise discretion, the police don't necessarily see that individual, that person in trouble, but see the group. They see a woman who commits crimes to live. They see someone that'll struggle to convince a jury she was raped. They'll see someone who society has strong views about. And this isn't just about the guards, this is about police everywhere. And so when they encounter a sex worker and exercise the discretion over whether to see her as a criminal or a victim, whether to prosecute or warn, whether to help her or not, those underlying values that a police officer may not be aware of, may never have articulated, can take over. Well, my understanding is that there's very few purchasers who are actually being arrested, that it's by and large that Guardi are continuing to target uh, sex work the way they always have, which is by going after the providers. The the most recent case that I did encounter was actually a husband and wife team of sex workers who were prosecuted in respect of each other, which I think is absolutely crazy. Adeline, too, sees sex workers being targeted in selective ways. One of the things that I wanted to bring up was the Gardaí's continued use of condoms as evidence of engagement in sex work. And... Um, when we at Sway finally got a meeting with Senior Gardi, we were assured that that's something they're not going to be stopping anytime soon. But the World well, Health Organization. pause you on that because surely a condom is evidence of sex, not necessarily of sex work. Yeah, you would think, but that's a thing that they, they use in the United States too. I'm sure you've heard of walking while trans. So if you're trans, like we said, there isn't a lot of other options for, for employment. Mm. Uh, but if you're trans and walking around and you have condoms, they will arrest you and go, ha ha, you're a sex worker and use the condoms to charge you. They're using the condoms as evidence here. So if police are using condoms as evidence, the risk is that purchasers will not want to use them. That brings all sorts of dangers for the sex worker. Wendy has seen a number of things used as damning evidence in cases. They will go on the woman's laptop or phone. Um, they're, they're often already aware of the fact that, you know, this is somebody who has been advertising. So they'll use the fact that they were advertising, you know, the ads on Escort Ireland and stuff. Unfortunately, sex workers often do make admissions at the scene. Sometimes they realize that it's not illegal to sell sex. And so they think it's OK if they say that they're doing that or they'll say, oh, well, I'm providing massage. And, you know, they don't realize that that's actually, you know, if it's sexual massage, then it would be included. There also is evidence of condom use definitely you, you know you'll see that when you when you get the the evidence that the police use they'll you know they'll mention like oh you know x number of condoms and sex toys and lube and things like that were found at the scene so this is definitely being used as well sex working laws in ireland have really instead of empowering sex workers as they were intended to do have really emboldened clients and made sex workers much more vulnerable. They're working longer hours. Sex workers are making decisions now that they may not have made. Their sex workers, like, they have, I haven't had a client all week. Maybe I will have unprotected sex with somebody. I've got to feed myself. And they're, they're taking risks and making decisions that they wouldn't have done otherwise. When your presence on the street, where there are street workers, they're seeing cars roll on up to them and they've got to they've got to make some decisions that, that and your your ability to assess these cars evolves over time like everything does and but they're you you've got reduced negotiation time you you now you're you're more likely because you're more likely to jump into a car without assessing to see whether it's safe and whether before you can negotiate condom usage also undocumented workers i've spoken to undocumented workers through sway and personally and in the course of doing research that are afraid to carry condoms in case they're stopped by Gardi. And you got clients, A, clients who are demanding unprotected sex, sex workers that are undocumented that are afraid to carry condoms in case it leads to their deportation. And the Gardi and C, the Gardi insisting we're going to continue using them as evidence. Quite often, I think a lot of sex workers who are arrested don't make contact with solicitors at all, you know, unless they are actually in the station. And at that point, the guard will, you know, often guards will actually tell them that they don't need a solicitor. 
Um, we, you know, have heard this from a few different people that they, you know, they've been basically told that, oh, you know, you're you're better off just pleading guilty and getting this over and done with. We've already heard that sex workers are confused about what's legal and what's not. The need for legal representation at the station to guide them through that process and start building a defence cannot be underestimated, and it is a constitutional right. Sometimes, you know, if they do insist on a solicitor, they'll usually just be assigned somebody from the legal aid. Sometimes they're happy with them, sometimes they're not. But, you know, it's, it's impossible to really know how many of these cases are, are happening and we're just not even hearing about them. Feeling unprotected by the Gardaí, sex workers have set up their own means of protecting themselves and each other. Ugly Mugs, for anyone who doesn't know, is a website where basically clients can report dangerous clients. That's basically all it does. It's not advertising sex worker services. It's just you download an app and if you've seen a client and they're dangerous or threatening or gave you bad vibes anyway, you can put in a report. Other workers will see that when his number comes up, when, they, when he phones them. So it's literally a life-saving uh, thing. I mean, robberies against sex workers have skyrocketed in the last few years too. Violence is up 92%, going by uh, calls into, into ugly mugs. They've seen violence skyrocket and armed robberies have gone through the roof. In, in, in fairness, the police have worked to put away some of these people, but a lot of it's been with our help, with the help of Sway, to uh, work with the girls to secure prosecutions against violent, violent clients. This contrasts starkly with the working relationships sex workers have with the police in New Zealand, where sex work has been fully decriminalised. We got in touch with Dr. Lindsay Armstrong, a senior lecturer in criminology at Victoria University of Wellington. So in New Zealand, we have decriminalised sex work. So that came, came into force in 2003 when the Prostitution Reform Act was passed. Um, and what that means is that it is not illegal to work in the sex industry. Um, and it's also not illegal to pay for sex as long as the person is over the age of 18. Um, it's also not against the law to run a brothel, for example. So when the Prostitution Reform Act was passed, essentially it repealed all of the kind of historic archaic legislation which prohibited um, brothel keeping, prohibited soliciting, um, meaning that people could you know, work freely in the sex industry, they could work together um, you know, without breaking those laws. So I guess the kind of the really significant difference between Ireland and New Zealand currently um, is you've got the criminalisation of clients um, in Ireland um, and we don't have that in, in this context. New Zealand's reformed laws have shifted attitudes in sex workers towards reporting crimes committed against them. So prior to the Prostitution Reform Act being passed, the police really were tasked with enforcing laws um, in relation to prostitution. So they were tasked with um, enforcing the laws relating to soliciting and also policing what were then massage parlours and, and, you know, enforcing all of the legislation around those activities. Whereas now the role has really shifted so that the police role in relation to the sex industry is not one of law enforcement specifically. It's, it's about actually supporting sex workers um, in relation to their safety and rights. So, for example, the research that I've done in the street context, the sex workers I interviewed talked quite extensively about how the police role had changed from one where, you know, they'd be on the street working and they would be looking out for the police um, and not wanting to see the police because if they saw the police, they would typically be coming to you know, to try and move them on or, or to try and charge them with an offence. Whereas now they would describe the police kind of passing by, asking if they were okay, asking if everything was all right. Um, if there had been an incident, for example, the police would, would share information with them, make sure they know to watch out for a particular car or a particular person. Um, the police will also, in the street context, help sex workers resolve disputes with clients. Um, so there's been cases of police like taking clients to cash machines to withdraw cash, um, you know, who've refused to pay street-based sex workers, for example. 
one of the things that I wanted to talk to the police about was uh, was the levels of trust. And there just seemed to be in the room an inability to put themselves in someone else's shoes. Because what I heard was, well, I think the trust in us has gone way up. Because when I go to the door and I knock on the door, they're happy to see me and they let me in. And I'm like, you're the guardie. What are they going to do? Climb out the window and run away? You know, just like, I mean, of course you are getting that perception, but you can't see where they're coming from. Like, you put yourself in their shoes. It, from my perspective, I had recently just talked to two sex workers who'd been raped and were afraid to contact the guardie for fear of making their circumstances worse. And at that, the two senior officers in the room blew up and they're like, how could it make things worse? How could it make things worse? Through evicting, imprisoning, deporting? Like, and they're like, well, we have to evict them because trafficking. I'm just like, what? The issue of trust in the police can be highly complicated. It's an issue that has come up in both episodes of this podcast so far, and it will continue to come up time and again. Academics have researched and evidenced a number of different models for why people trust the police. One of the most dominant is called procedural justice. People will trust the police if they feel they've been treated fairly, even more importantly than whether they think the right outcome is achieved. Others focus on whether the police are seen as legitimate, i.e. do they uphold shared values and norms of those in society. Lately in Ireland we've heard much talk of the term policing by consent, which is partly built on legitimacy but implies something that is fixed, decided at a certain time, and is something in which the public have had a clear say. That time to me is difficult to pinpoint in Ireland, which is why I don't think it holds true here. One further idea that we should be aware of is attitudinal justice. This builds on the idea of fairness, but looks at the whole of the interaction and allows for the person to make judgments on factors like empathy, compassion, tone, and the overall nature of the interaction. Realistically, different issues will matter for different people. There's even been research that shows that this aligns to your political preferences. But I want to stress that trust in the police is not a vague concept. It's a detailed, nuanced issue that can be affected by a number of factors, all of which the police have control over. And trust is not just a feel-good factor for the person being policed. It's a dynamic that is central to police work. If people do not trust the police, they will not report crimes. They will not act as witnesses. They will not pass on information. And even the positive efforts of the police may be misinterpreted. The police cannot do their job if they don't have the trust of communities. Kate McGrew, director of the Sex Work Alliance, told us that there are members of the guards trying to do the right thing, but it's not possible for sex workers to overcome those issues of trust. We really recognise that the challenge is the law that they're being asked to enforce. So um, as much as you know, we want to work together with, with Angarda Shiokana, and we do, it's a real um, sort of contradiction towards that. We do know that they want to, you know, help catch um, help catch violent criminals, etc. But it's a reality that sex workers do not want to engage with them because, um, in the very least, it's it's their income that they are aware guardy could uh, take away from them because they are they're criminals under this legislation also because if they are working with a friend for safety or because it's cheaper that way they might be unlikely to report something that happens uh, because they're afraid that they will get arrested themselves for these so-called brothel keeping laws as I said, we, we do work with, with Gardie. It was it was ourselves at Sway who received a call from three workers who were violently raped and robbed. And it was ourselves who were called because we are peers and so um, understood and known to be safe. And we helped them and supported them in that moment. And we supported them through very bravely going to court and testifying against this man and and um, reporting with our officers. And that man is now in jail for 20 years. He's serving a 20-year uh, prison sentence. So that's very wonderful. It's also very unusual. You know, I mean, j- just today I was in communications with our liaison officer. We were 
encouraging them to make a press release about um, some very violent assaults and robberies that have been occurring in Dublin 2 area. And they were wanting instead to send out text messages, which they've done a few times, to sex workers' phones directly. But unfortunately, what I had to feed back to the liaison was that when that happened, we immediately got a lot of communications from from people, first of all, thinking it was a joke or a prank, and then being really sort of alarmed and concerned and unsettled by how police had their number in the first place and just the feeling that they were being surveilled. You know, it made them aware that Gardi are, are essentially present on our advertising platforms. That's really interesting. So there's some very positive examples there of the guards at least trying to do the right thing and yes. expressing concern about sex worker safety and trying to find ways to communicate that. Mm-hmm. So your position will be that that's not really doable for the guards with the law the way that it is. And and that's what I that's what our conversation was today was you know sort of asking can can these communications please come from Sway we can pass along your your numbers we can pass along your you know your good intentions etc. Et but um, but this kind of communication all it does is kind of is is make people nervous. And 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 it and it it damages trust actually for suddenly our numbers to 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 be used by 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 police to receive a text message. Um, as I said, people are finding it unnerving. Mm. And with the the previous case you mentioned, um, that awful case where thankfully the individual concerned is now in prison, um, were the guards helpful when the women did approach them? Yes. And, and you know, it, it does need to be said that there's a, a real uh, wide range of experiences that people are having with, with Gardi. So some of them are, are quite good, you know, and, um, and it was a very good result for those women. And I know organisations like Ugly Mugs and Sway have been working with women who may have suffered serious crime or violence do many sex workers report to the guards in your experience? Unfortunately, very few do. You, you may have heard us say the statistic that since this law has been passed, there, were, there was such a huge increase in um, specifically violent crime against us. And at the same time, there was a near 20% decrease um, in the amount of people that wanted their reports passed on. So... You know, I think there, unfortunately, is a sense sometimes of, um, at the very worst, being treated poorly or being arrested themselves, risking deportation, risking being evicted, having their children taken off of them, all of these kinds of things, or at least just being uh, treated poorly as well or disbelieved. I think it's also that people don't have confidence that, that there will be a result that there that there will be um, justice. It's really created a context in which it's much easier for people to report bad experiences if they do have them because they don't fear the police. They don't see them as, you know, as a threat to them. They see the police as, you know, being there to actually to help them and they have an expectation that they will help them. People's expectations seem to be quite a bit higher now. And that isn't to say that you know, it's always a good experience. Of course, you know, people work in policing, so there's always um, possibilities of, of getting someone who is unhelpful. But I think something that's really changed in this context and is quite unique in this context is that when sex workers have a bad experience, they can also challenge it with the police. So one sex worker I interviewed recently um, talked about a time where she had reported sexual assault. She'd gone along to report it. And the first officer that she spoke to was very helpful and very respectful. But then their colleague, um, she felt, spoke to her quite inappropriately and asked her questions in a way that she felt really wasn't, you know, sensitive at all. And she felt that they were being asked in that way because she was a sex worker. And she actually complained about that. Um, an action was taken to educate this officer and to ensure that it didn't happen again. So I think that really kind of illustrates how that power dynamic has shifted. Um, and, you know, sex workers can, can actually challenge police who don't treat them well. 
um, in this context. Did you ever make any complaints about Garda behaviour? I did. I put one into the ombudsman and uh, I have to say the ombudsman were very, very nice. Um, but last I heard, that guard refuses to cooperate. <laughs> but uh, it might still be ongoing, but uh, I haven't heard anything in a little bit. It was almost a year afterwards, but not quite. And I think after a year you're done, but uh, it's not for me that I'm making a stink. <laughs> it's like, you know, I don't want the... the uh, wife of some guy who's seen a sex worker to get HIV. I, I don't want a mom who's got no other options shown out on the street during the biggest housing crisis in Irish history. I want, I want people to be safe. I want to live in, in the Ireland we, we claim to be, the kind, loving Ireland where we actually take care of people. They're also contributing to Ireland's record levels of HIV diagnoses. Like, Ireland has higher level of HIV diagnoses now than it did even in the 80s. Like, we're one of the only places where it's skyrocketing. There, there's some things that the Gardaí is, is not responsible for. Um, high costs of housing will drive more people into sex work. It just makes sense. You're going to do whatever you can to pay the rent to keep a roof over yourself and over the, over the heads of your kids and whatever. Um, sex workers are being threatened with getting bad reviews if they don't let them have unprotected sex. The communications are through the roof with people demanding more liberties, demanding the same services for less money. But those people are not keeping stocks of condoms at home. Like right now, I, I'm inundated with uh, people who... It, it's COVID, so, you know, I haven't been seeing anyone anyway. Um, but they're like, yeah, and I want to, you know, come to a dungeon. I'm like, Ireland doesn't have any dungeons, because this is why, because... You know, the stigma here, and you, you won't stand up and, and fight for these things. So you want to go to a dungeon where it's nice and safe and, and it's completely clean and sterile and I take all the right precautions. That's not a thing we can have because I did have it. I, I sank everything I had into it, but it's, it's, uh, that's not a thing we can have here. I, I had to explain sort of again and again why um, it, it's that people... Are, are wary of their income being taken away. And I had to break down that their income are clientele, is our, is our clients, you know. And, and then it is the law, you know, um, Vicky, the law needs to be changed so that they can properly be in a role of protection as opposed to antagonistic policing and dispersing. Now is a good time to mention that a public consultation is taking place on the sex work laws in Ireland, with submissions closing this Friday, which Kate stressed was crucial feedback. Yeah, that would be that would be really excellent. We thank anybody who can. I grew up being told I was stupid. And if everyone around you is telling you you're stupid, they can't all be wrong, you know? And I was really excited for science in school and uh, science taught me very quickly that I didn't belong there and I was terrible at it. And I just went through most of my life thinking I'm a dumbass because what else would you think, you know? And I thought it was kind of weird because I've got a lot of friends who are scientists and I'm very interested in science and and I would have this conversation with my wife a lot because she's a giant nerd also. But I was like, it, it's weird how interested in science we are considering how bad we are at it. And then after I was refused medical care because I'm trans, I um, started my psychology degree. And it turns out it's not true. It turns out I'm actually pretty good at it. I got highest in my year one year for in biopsychology. Like, I'm just like, what the hell? You know, it's just, it's kind of weird to find out in your 40s that you're not an idiot. You know, it's just, it's like, not a complete idiot anyway. So yeah, now I'm about to start my PhD. And during my uh, undergraduate degree, I did a qualitative study of life for sex workers in Ireland under the Swedish model of criminal client criminalization and which I'm in the process of trying to get that into a, a journal now with help from my supervisors helping me um, edit the whole thing and see things I'm not seeing and um, but yeah I'm about to start a, a study of um, older life for older intersex people across Europe I believe in turning your curses into gifts if you can and finding the positive in, in every situation, no matter how bleak. Um, 
but yeah, I think it, it's it's important. I'm in a place where I can. Like I'm also a sex worker. I've emigrated twice at this point, so like I, I think I have a duty. Like I, um, you know, I mean that's what when 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 the guardy. When senior guardy were, were bandying around the uh, 90% of sex workers that want to be in it and 10% are happy to stay there, I pointed out that, you know, that those numbers are just ridiculous because there's no way of measuring our numbers. Like, I'm there because you can't take my kids. You, you've already evicted me. You've already almost taken my life and my wife's life. And, you know, you've already done all these things. And I'm also, I'm middle-aged. Like, I'm not you know, I'm not destroying my career in banking or in teaching or anything else. So it's just, you know, it's it's important. I have a duty to stand up. There's a 20-year-old sex worker out there that would destroy her entire life by speaking up. And if I can save her and a couple more from doing that, I, that that's that's a good thing to do, I think. Sex work is a complicated and sometimes divisive area. What we've heard today by listening to Adeline and others is that there are two real factors when it comes to policing it. First, there's the laws that the guards are tasked with enforcing. They obviously have to work within the parameters of the law. Sex workers believe that this law is hamstringing good efforts that some guardie might like to make. There's a review ongoing of that law and you can make your submission by the end of the 11th of September. But then there's how the Gardaí operationalise that law, how they choose to use their discretion, how they may be influenced by stereotyping. We've heard quite starkly from Adeline what the consequences were for her work, her home and her mental health. We've heard what it means for the safety of sex workers, for the health of society and for trust in policing more broadly. I hope this episode has shown the value of listening to a different perspective on policing. I want to thank Wendy Lyon and Dr. Lindsay Armstrong for sharing their expertise and an enormous thank you to Adeline Berry for speaking so openly and honestly. Thanks to my producers, Tony Groves and Brian at Grooves Ahead. This series will continue to try and put the voices of people with diverse experiences of policing front and centre. Join me next week when we'll speak to the family of Terence Wheelock, a young man who died in 2005 following detention in a Garda station. Until then, thank you for listening and I want to remind you that Policed in Ireland is part of the Tortoiseshack and is a listener-funded platform. If you're enjoying, please support this project on patreon.com forward slash where you'll be able to access additional content in the series. 